In this episode, Mariana Lazaro, CFO of Latin America at SumUp, shares that when it came to her career, it has always been about finance. She also emphasizes the importance of taking action on diversity and why it should never be seen as a nice to have. And finally, she describes that for some up, finance is far from a traditional back office function. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook, where each week you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Before we jump into the interview, we want to invite you, our listeners, to head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. We want to learn about how to make the CFO playbook even better. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. Mariana, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Ross. So Mariana, obviously in your role as CFO at, at SumUp, there, there's a lot to explore there and I'd, and I'd love to learn more about that. But it would be helpful for listeners and, and for me to understand, how did you get to that position at CFO? What was the journey? You, what I can see, of course, is you you started in finance many, many moons ago, even in college. Um, so was it always about finance for you or did you consider other paths? No, it was always about finance. I was have been inspired by the finance um, subject for years. So when I was about 17 years old, I got selected to be an exchange program through Rotary in California. And then when I was there, I had a chance to be exposed to a lot of, especially in California, where there is very strong, I would say, uh, women in leadership back then, I would say, what, 25 years ago. So I got exposed to the finance world. And that's something that I fell in love with. And from early on, I knew I want to work with finance and that's where I want my career to progress. So today I have the role of the CFO for Latin America. And uh, I have a team inside of SumUp in basically three countries today. Going back to that early exposure, what was it about finance that you fell in love with? I think it's going to sound a little bit basic, but to me, I think a woman that has ownership of their financials, they understand their numbers, even for their private life was something that was so important for us to have our independence and really guide what we want in life. So from early on, I was very conscious about what, how I should spend. Of course, I come from a from an immigrant family. My family, they're immigrants from Spain. They left the war. So my grandma, when I arrived, she was very cautious about how you'd spend money and taught us very well towards, uh, I would say, conscious of, I don't have, for example, large credit card bills. I always been, I always joke to my kids that we have to spend money uh, as we earn, even though it sounds very basic, uh, but that's something that I believe from early on. And I had a passion for finance, not only finance, economics. And when I was in college, I was exposed to this, and then I want to really go towards applied this to my career. And then I went and I got my business degree. And then after my business degree, I worked in finance. My first job was in a technology company as a financial analyst. And then, of course, I came back to Brazil again to work here. And then I had a Latin American role. 
and then I applied for MBA. I got into the MIT MBA with the Sloan Management School, which I studied there, which helped a lot for sure. And, and I also did a degree in MBA with emphasis in corporate finance. So I never left the finance world. Some people kept teasing me, don't you want to open a startup or don't you want to do something else besides finance? But I, I, I like that the role of looking at the numbers and not having only the role of being that person that only number oriented, but how, what can we better apply uh, the revenue we have and the cost we have? How can we do this for the business? But today I work in a company that is a fintech, payment fintech, and this always been my goal to work in a, into the payment industry because Inside of the payment industry, the finance department is not a back office. So you're not talking about basically about the accounting department. You're talking about a department that's going to be really together with the business delivering the product. Okay, So when we have SumUp or a Square, any of those fintechs, the finance is really in the front of the show together with the product in the NGO team. So every time the fintech will launch a product, if you're talking about lending, if you're talking about instant payout or buy now, pay later, any of those products, you have to have a source of financing those products in the background, which that's when the business finance business partner will come in and really help the product to develop. And that's something that I have, have passion for. And with, this is basically what I was brought in to create in Brazil. So we have a really robust source of funding for the products we have, especially when you're talking about countries like Brazil or any of the developing countries that you have large fluctuations on the interest rate on just on you, where you can really create a structure that you're able to fund without so much risk. Because if you're looking as a corporation as a whole, you should really have a mix of developing and developed country and how risky it is the developing country should try to do risk and bring more robustness to that organization. That's exactly what they brought me in. And mm -hmm. I think that's what I have delivered in the last three years. And it's really interesting that you describe that idea of finance being more than back office in fintech and payments. We experience and we see the same thing at Soldo. We're in fintech and and of course our, our product in particular is, is focused on serving the needs of people in finance. So our finance team in many cases inside the company are our biggest customers, number one. They're our most innovative coming up with ideas of things that could make their life easier. But then on top of that, they can sometimes be wonderful advocates and, and people to speak peer to peer with some of our customers. So it, it creates a completely different role for people the finance function and people in finance when you work in that type of category. Yeah, I completely agree. I think uh, for, for the longest time, people should have that perception, you know, oh, the finance team, the blockers, they're the road blockers, or they, it's just the debit and credit, the accounting, kind of seeing their stereotype. And they usually don't think about, for example, a Sarah Fryer of the world that's actually addressing the investors where they're in the front run of all the innovation that's going on inside of fintech. So towards more of that type of the finance person, which I, for example, I'm right after this podcast, I have a, a meeting. I'm going to one of the largest banks in Brazil. We're trying to negotiate a way of funding our instant payout. That's something I'm passionate for. How are we going to how can I'm going to sell, I would say, sell those transactions so I can receive the funds early. That's something that I, I like it a lot. And I, and I think this is where, the, especially in the fintech and in the payment world, this is where the uh, professions that are in this 
this type of environment they should try to grow is towards the innovation of the finance and in, in different sourcings for the business for sure. So how do you approach that then? That especially that idea that before you were really in the say sum up and and companies like sum up, there's a way of doing finance which is often tied into the way it's always been done. That there is there's creativity and there's refinement, but you're not always rethinking the problem from first principles. Whereas what you're doing at sum up, of course, is in many aspects is you're rethinking things from first principles and you're trying to innovate and offer something that's never been created before. So that must be, in some ways, quite a challenging endeavor uh, as a finance professional, because that's not part of the training. That's correct. Uh, so usually sometimes I get the question, what would be your next step? Because today I'm the CFO for Motan, and my, my answer back is, to be super honest, I think I was able to do so much in my role in Latin America. As far as innovative, like we launched a trust in Brazil, for example, that uh, was the first trust ever launched in Brazil to supply funding for fintechs. So there's things that I'm doing that I don't think I would have been exposed had I been working, a, I would say, in a conventional finance company where most of the finance team is a lot more back office than front office. Mm -hmm. But Ross, one thing that I think we really have to break, I, I would say the finance team should break away from it, independent of your friend offer back office. The finance team where it should be included treasury, tax, accounting, always should be innovative and creative, independent of being in an industry that you're innovating or independence. One thing, for example, that we did here is we're bringing more and more like engineers to help us creating little squads to help us to bring technology into our day-to-day -day activities. And that's something that independent of where which industry we're made a difference for us. And I think that's where the CFOs need to be a lot more creative on being nimble, being bring the, especially the technology inside of the finance, for sure. I love the idea of bringing engineers in, into finance, which is not, of course, again, a, a conventional thing. But we hear from, from some of your peers and previous guests, that's becoming increasingly common. And we had a recent guest on who used to be in finance and then has set up more recently a company called Mosaic. And part of the premise of that company is that finance is becoming increasingly technical and that actually they wanted to, they, they saw an opportunity to create a product around that. And uh, so that's clearly something that you're doing as well, is that you're partnering with those engineers to address some of those underlying technical problems. For sure. I think here will not only save time, saves headcount. Mm -hmm. It's a challenge for the engineer because he can work in a project and then switch to another one. For sure, I think this is something that most of the CFOs will need to invest. It's how do you put inside of the accounting team finance squads and finance tribes to help you to give this step forward into the technology of the team as a whole, I would say. So what are some of the problems that you've been trying to solve with those finance squads and tribes? So since here in Latin America, especially Brazil, we end up having we have a very dynamic treasury department because it works almost as a little bank, I would say, mm -hmm. because you have to sell and buy every day because I in order to uh, to follow all the products I have available. So if I have lending, what can I create to do this? So usually today, the squad that I have is supporting a lot on the treasury side. How do I able to co-create a market platform where I'm 
be able to quote at the same time different banks what's the best rate that they are providing daily I need to do this and so the engineering team helped me a lot to bring this on board another thing to sum up in Brazil we are regulated so we have to comply to the central bank with specific reporting to your surprise I was able to put to your surprise or to everybody's surprise including mine we are able to put this report inside of SAP and now we just uh, get this report out and send to the central bank so there's a lot of fronts that we end up using some of the engineer team to help us to optimize inside. Mm-hmm. I find it fascinating how, how almost of a, you're, you're more of a product leader in, in finance, part of your role than, than just the CFO. So does that require a completely different mindset to think like that? Because again, looking for those innovations, directing engineers and building that automation, those many products and automation that you're building, it, it it's, it's challenging at times. So it is challenging, but that's something I, to me, that's why I picked to work in a company like SumUp yeah. that invests yeah. so much in automation, invests in engineering products. SumUp, before anything, I think it's a tech hub before anything else. So to me, I was working in a company that I was able to put in practice the side of mingling finance with product. Mm-hmm. But I have to confess that the engineering, uh, the mindset for engineer is very different from the mindset of a finance. So especially in the beginning, uh, when we're talking about the accounting team or even with the treasury team, mm-hmm. there is a little bit of timing. They get together and able to really work because the engineers do need to understand what is we need to accomplish following some very strict guidelines. So for them also is a little bit of adjustment. And I guess it is because in this case, if it's connected to treasury or even accounting, those are in a different sense, highly technical functions. And so it takes a while to be able to learn that. It's not like a simple uh, job or simple process. And one thing too that I think we need to realize and be patient is every time you implement a new technology or you work with a new squad, there is the moment until you, the team gets used to, you're able to explain what needs to be done the products start to work and then to really you able to take advantage and, and take the step up, it takes a little bit of time. So you need to be patient. Even when we implemented SAP in Brazil, for example, in the beginning it was very frustrating because the team wasn't not aware of train or how to use. There's a lot of issues. Now I think we cannot live without. But mm-hmm. takes a good, I would say, six to a year until this new technology is able to settle into the ecosystem they are supposed to be working at. And, and of course, with SAP, though, that, that's a typically a highly complex ERP. It's not something yeah. that you implement very quickly. No, correct. But nowadays, every time when you go to a new country, that's one of the first things we're trying to do is to put the SAP ERP because otherwise our life is also very hard now when we're not mm. using that system. And so then working with those technology teams and developers, are at the beginning, you, you've alluded to some teething problems or challenges. Were there times where you got it wrong uh, and like you set a brief up, but actually the, the product didn't turn out how you expected it? Yeah, I think I have more stories of what I got wrong than right. But <laughs> one of the things that I think we have to be cautious, for example, is when we put a squad to be working inside of finance, they need to have a tech lead. They need to have somebody because a finance person should be giving guidance, purely guidance on technical part 
to an engineer, it's not that's not something that they, they energize them. So for sure, create a, a structure where the squad inside of finance is a tech lead inside of a planning form or some somebody that will be to be a mentor and follow this person closely. So that's one thing that in the beginning we didn't do too well, and now we're able to fix. But again, Ross, when I started SumUp, I started SumUp almost four years ago, three years and a half ago. SumUp was less than a thousand employees. Now SumUp has 3,500 employees. So it's all like in the beginning, of course, you're a lot more, hey, we need to get this done, we need to get this done. Otherwise, it's almost survival. And I think now that we, I joke that SumUp Stop doing a stop being a small fintech to a real fintech, where it's a, a sort it's a tech hub where we're um, launching products almost weekly, where we have to be a lot more cautious on the structure of our engineering, especially inside of the finance team. And what, like to that point, you're clearly working obviously in an innovative tech company and you're really investing in R&D and, and, and particularly tech resource, you seem to be building or at least investing and building a lot in-house. Do you also look to buy certain solutions and use uh, like best of breed solutions from other categories when you're thinking of tools that the finance team need? I think there's two types of tools. So globally, as an ERP, we do use SAP, and which brought so much agility to the finance team as a whole, and we're able to see the results a lot faster. But you do have to do some customizing depending on the country we are in. So, for example, I'm going to use Brazil as an example. We have a tax team that it was a, we had to get a local software because the tax set up in Brazil is complex. So there was a lot of manual work. So we, we set up the tech team to be practically 100% automated now. So you do have to customize by countries you go in, and especially the more and more you become regulated, which type of information you will need to the central, to the regulators locally in the country. So there is a global uh, tools that is, is fundamental, but you definitely will need to cater to the countries you're working in. And then that's, of course, for your ERP. But are there other 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 categories, other tools that you are looking at across the, the, the finance team beyond that ERP? So I would say SumUp is a company that it was born in technology. So even when it happened, for example, COVID-19, where people had to go home office, I would say SumUp had a less struggle than probably the regular company. Since we are located in 34 countries, we already had, we used Zoom in your, our day-to-day operation. We use Slack in our day-to-day mm-hmm. operation. Some of this, almost everything in Google Docs. Rarely you're going to do anything by yourself in your computer where people won't have access. Everything is shared. So as a company, as a whole, some of you use Slack, Google Doc, uh, things that make the communication very fluid and dynamic, which help us, uh, uh, especially when we had to migrate to 100% home office. Now we are hybrid, but during the pandemic, we're 100% home office. And how do you manage that approach to hybrid across your team at the moment? So, Ross, I have to be honest here, which I'm not sure if it's going to be super welcome what I'm going to say. But I am think that especially when we're talking to be 100% home office, especially the finance team, where in Brazil we had to create so much in the last year, the last two years, 
out the a marketplace where I was able to put all my receivables, all the banks had to plug in was something that was a little bit more complex. I think to have everybody sitting in the office to create this together is essential for us to get to this next step. And I told this mm -hmm. the team, obviously I didn't impose on anybody that they needed to be 100% here in the office, but for me to build this synergy among the team is essential that we be in the office at least two or three times a week. So now as a rule, not a fixed rule, because SMUP is very nimble and, and I think we definitely cater to our employees. We usually want to twice a week in the office and when we are launching something, a product, and then we will come probably every day because we need to be reading the contract, talking to the banks and, and talking to the, to the different teams. And then we are more in the office for sure. So the moment is close to 50-50 if you're in, let's say, two uh, or so days a week. In Brazil, I would say that my team is probably 60% at home and 40% in the yeah. office. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we see so many, so many leaders and CFOs that are trying to tussle with that. And, and it seems as if there's certainly a huge move towards more hybrid and more remote working. Yeah. I don't know if this is the same in Brazil, but one of the things we've seen in, in different parts of Europe and very much so in North America is that by going more distributed, it allows you to access talent who might not be in your main city. And I know in Brazil, um, it's very centralized around Sao Paulo, that a lot of the yeah. talent and people. Yeah. But is that something that you've seen where you're able to tap into other cities or other countries when you're hiring? For sure. So I would say in finance, I don't think we're in this scarcity scarcity of resource that we have in engineering products. So finance, I would say I still, I, I have no issue on finding uh, highly skilled workers where I am and has not been an issue. Engineering product, uh, I think that's another situation where we are able to tap in in other countries. And I think they're hybrid or I would say 100% home office definitely uh, went really well with it, especially for looking for new uh, talents for engineering mm -hmm. product. But finance, I would say we are we are fine in finding probably in Berlin or, or Sao Paulo or Bulgaria, which is another in Chile. I think there's the four large countries that we're in. And does that mean that in the case of Brazil, that do you think that the country will become a little bit more decentralized away from Sao Paulo as companies tap into other talent pools? I think so. I think so. I would say 40% of my friends today and they are already working outside of Sao Paulo. They're living yeah. outside of Sao Paulo and traveling into the city. Sao Paulo is a very dense city, a lot of traffic, a lot of pollution. So if people have the chance of living outside of Sao Paulo, for sure they would do it. And then they come into town to work two or three times a week. Yeah. I remember the first time that I went to in Sao Paulo and I was in one of the skyscrapers in downtown and it just felt as if it went on forever. That you could just see city for as city. for as yeah. far as the horizon. Yeah, it's a very large city, busy city with a lot of traffic. So then coming back to your team and the fact that you work so closely with technology and the the in your company, your your and being a payments company in fintech. You're very focused on innovation. Does that mean that you need to hire slightly different profiles into your finance team than perhaps other non-fintech companies would have to do? 
So that's a great question, Ross. So the, if I would divide the finance in two areas, for example, the role of accounting, which I would say there is innovation every time we launch a product, but I would say is a role that basically you need to understand what's the product, how it's going to be reflected inside of our numbers. But I think, especially when you work in specific countries, the appetite for creating capital market structures very localized into the country where demands local banks and, and people that understand, yes, I would say today inside of the finance team, there is a challenge related to the capital market and how this capital market will work inside of each country that we are going in. That's one of every time we're looking at a new country in Latin America, I immediately think, do I know anybody from there, from my MBA program? How can I tap into these people? How am I going to be able to fund a product inside of that country? Because obviously you're not going to be using any money that's, it's merchant, I would say it's merchant, receivables from merchant. So it needs to be dealt in, within the country. You're looking for that country expertise, but you also yes. need someone who can partner with engineers. Exactly. So it's not something as trivial, right? How yeah. I'm going to be connecting. and uh, So it, there, it's a catered, very catered and very specific talent that we end up looking into that country. Today in Latin America, I, I'm being able to cover together with a small team, not only Brazil, but the other regions. But definitely, I think this is a challenge specific for the payment industry, specific for fintechs, for sure. Going back to you, and you spoke about well, like adopting hybrid, being together, creating synergy in the team. One of the themes that, that a lot of CFOs seem very focused on is trying to free up their teams from the historical admin that might have existed so that they can do more analysis, in your case, perhaps do more automation, product innovation, and also just play a bigger role in the company's growth and company strategy. Is that a topic that is important for you too? For sure. So I think I would divide this question in two parts. So mm -hmm. I think finance was born already playing a big role inside of SumUp because of the, the foreign office position that we ended up taking it. So I don't think I had to fight for to, to fight for my turf there because it kind of came with, with the job. But I always tell my team that we need to outbase everything in numbers, especially when we're trying to make a decision. In, in, when I'm talking about my team and I'm talking about accounting or even the finance, the team as a whole here in the country, everything that we should have is based on the numbers and the KPIs. But SumUp is very strong with this. So SumUp was born from day one in technology and numbers. We have a routine of every Monday posting all the KPIs, posting all the numbers. As it's an understanding among the team on numbers, where we are, where we're going. It's a very cultural based on data, which I think is one of success factors for SumUp. So my accountant here, which is a senior accountant, he understands what's my result for the month, what it means, which product I grew, he, even though he's, I would say, more the back office person. And that's something also I appreciate a lot inside of SumUp because I come from other companies that the finance was more isolated and have, did not have so much context of where we are. I don't think it's the case here. Why do you think that is that, that it's different in SumUp versus your old companies? 
That's interesting. I think it's from the beginning, right? Because we have two mm-hmm. founders today, which is Daniel Klein and Mark Chris. And Mark Chris is the CFO and Daniel Klein is the CEO. So probably based on the fact that one of the founders is a CFO, the company yeah. <laughs> was very number driven and not only only looking at the results, but we have KPIs and everything that yeah. we end up visiting every week. And maybe it's also down to the fact that you're, as a finance team, are playing a role in shaping the product and the innovation we and the offering to a customer. Exactly, exactly. I mean, uh, it's amazing. Every time when, I, when I'm watching FinTech announce something, oh, pay now by later or anything, my first thing mm-hmm. that comes to my mind is, well, I wonder how is the, the finance team set up? How are they interacting with the engineering team? How are they helping to build this product or... How are they going to source the money inside of the countries they're in? Because to be a fintech in the payment industry, I think the largest second question besides how good is your product is how are you financing inside of those countries? What are you doing? What's your credit engine? What's your funding engine inside of those countries to make it this happen? So then for finance, and you talk about referencing for other, other companies and you like learning from them. What are some of the big things, the big challenges or opportunities that you see ahead for, in particular, the in the Latin American region within SumUp, but in, but especially for the finance team? Uh, I think one of the biggest challenges that we'll have here in Latin America is really for Latin America, I would say, because there's a lot of up and downs. I would say, so how would I assess the less Two, three years, right? We had a pandemic, which was an impact uh, that was positive. I would say very cautious how I say this because it was a negative impact overall. But in the payment industry, you would see a shift towards more payment with credit card, more payments online. So there is a a very large growth in the payment industry and the fintechs that are inside. And I would say the only way you can put uh, up and running a product, you have to have the funding ready before that. Is the finances quick enough to do this before they launch the product? To me, it's one of the largest challenges we have today to make sure we're not launching the product and then trying to find out how we're going to do to finance the product inside of the company. It, to me, it's the largest challenge we have today. And then like for you as a, like a finance team and how you operate, are there any specific big initiatives that you're working on? So one of the largest initiatives we are working on is growth in Latin America. So we entered Chile, which was a very, very interesting challenge. And it's one of the markets that's growing the most now. It was interesting to set up the team there. Also, Ross, one of the things is Especially when you're fintech and you're growing, you have to be very cautious not to be every time you enter a new country to do to be duplicating roles. So now for some up in Latin America, we're gonna create a hub, an accounting hub, which will be located in Chile and Brazil. And this accounting hub will service the entire America regions. So all the way from US to all the regions in Latin America, and Brazil also will service Brazil and then some other countries. And initially, we didn't think about doing this because we thought, oh, no, we're not big enough for this. But it's amazing how much you can save and how more efficient you can be when you consolidate those areas. You have to pick and choose when you consolidate it because also when you consolidate, you can bring a little bit more less 
fast pace to the company, especially in a fintech, that's very important. So you have to be very cautious when you do it, how you do it, how fast you're going to be able to turn that around. And to me, has been this challenge for this year of 2002. That's, that's really interesting. And, and what I find what I find also fascinating is that you're in sum up. So obviously a venture-backed company and then coming back to where you started and, and you, the, the the fascinating insight you shared of your motivation with finance, which is being empowered financially, personally, was also something that tied into your professional choices. And that you mentioned as well, no credit card debt, no debt at all, try to be very responsible. What is that like then for you personally, being in a venture-backed company, which of course is is backed on that basis of uh, of debt or, or debt equity, and and but yet personally wanting to be much more responsible? How do you marry those two attitudes up? Yeah, but actually, I think I'm a perfect person to be working at Sum because SumUp is very responsible financially. Even yeah. we do have investors, which is uh, there. There's we do have debt, but if we look at the proportion to equity debt, I would say it's a company that's extremely responsible on this and how we even allocate our funds. We have a program inside of SumUp that's called Founder Mentality. It's not a program, but I would say one of our strong culture uh, setups is the Founder Mentality program. I'm one, a big member of that. So basically, uh, when we interview anybody to join SumUp, there's this last interview that's the Founder Mentalities that you go, you talk to to the person to see if they has that mentality of you're going to treat some up like your own. You're going to be cautious. You're going to be very cautious how you spend money inside of the company. And it's something that some up believes to its core. And, and I would say it's something that I do too. So I think it was a good match. And, and that is, that founder mentality I think has probably put some up in a very good position in the current market. So what we, what you can see like with public valuations for tech companies, they went through this incredible spike, roller arguably coaster. a bubble, a roller coaster. And now, they, now they've come right down again. And some of that's filtering through to private markets. So what's your perspective on that? Well, first and foremost, as a CFO, but then secondly, also as, as a responsible CFO, that's interesting. So, Ross, I think there's a roller coaster. I mean, we see from all the even companies in Brazil, which I'm not sure if you're familiar, but Stone, Pag is even these companies in US. We're looking at Square. We're looking at Toast, which is a company that I am always checking. That you see a really loss in value of the company, mm-hmm. and I think sometimes the market takes, I would say, over emotional decisions sometimes. But in the end of the day, I think the company should look within if what they have as products is something that's durable, that's something Mm -hmm. that will bring value Mm -hmm. to the company, that's not just for show, but has a sense to it that you really, this is a good product and you can back up by engineers, by process. I think these companies will make it. When I see companies that are able to make profit based on, oh, they're charging a different interest rate or a different inter, um, interchange rate based on a gray area from the regulated and that's how they made their revenue. I'm always very cautious. In the end of the day, we need to look under the mattress. It needs to have essence. What you provide it needs to be good product, long-term position. Otherwise, um, it's going to be up and downs and, and, and your company won't make it. I think that's great advice for for any CFO or aspiring CFO listening. And on that point of aspiring CFOs, 
if there's anyone that's listening that is that has had in their mind that they would like to one day become a CFO, they would like to emulate you in that role. What advice would you have for them so that when that time comes, they could be successful and effective? So I would say that a woman, I was raised by two professors, my mom and my dad. And I think to me, the only way that we can make the next step in life is always education. And that's been something that we truly believe in my house. I mean, I would say if I look back when my grandma first arrived in Brazil, I mean, she was up to fourth grade she had, and then she really put a lot of effort in putting her kids to school and my parents did the same thing. So to me, the only way for us to make a difference, it's educate yourself to the max. And and, and, and that's something that I learned recently, especially for women. It's so important to see other women there. I'm an introvert and I'm not a very... Even when they asked me to come to the podcast, I was like, okay, it's going to be hard because I'm not a super talk to person. But what I learned in, in that helped me to kind of come out as more of an outspoken, especially towards women in leadership, is it makes a difference when you see a woman occupying, especially a finance role, where they are having a leadership position to inspire others. And, and you literally can see, even when you're in a room, if the other woman see another woman, they will speak more, they will they feel more empowered. So to me, I think uh, for sure study but if you're a woman, besides studying, you have almost the obligation of inspiring other women to grow. And there's a saying that I learned in my MBA school. It's a little bit strong of a saying, which is women that doesn't help women has a special place in hell, which I thought the first time I heard, I was like, this is horrible. I would never say this. But and then the more and more I think I, I grow, you know, becoming older, I think it's true. I mean, we, we, you have an obligation now of helping others. So I, I participate in a lot of women forums, but besides that, I also doing a lot of community work, mentoring other women, especially from underprivileged background, which mm-hmm. has been, to me, has personally has been super inspiring and humbling. And on that topic, actually, it's something that we, of course, are in, are in building our podcast and, and trying to get uh, um, guests on and find the right guests. We're constantly tussling with the idea of, of getting diversity, diversity in lots of different dimensions. But one of the first ones we look at, of course, is looking for a balance of men and women on the on the show. And of course, just like in engineering and in different, in different professions, there are fewer female CFOs out there. So actually, sometimes it's, it's challenging to source a balanced audience. And there'll be many people listening, of course, that are CFOs that might, may or may not have the right balance um, between men and women in their, in their team. So what do you think people like us uh, at Soldo and, and, and hosting this uh, this podcast, but also the audience can do to try and promote the, the opportunities to women and create more diverse teams? That's a hard one, right? So I would say a couple of things. Definitely diversity comes from the leadership. There is no doubt. So for, I mean, sum up is a company has diversity in its DNA. I mean, it was built from scratch with this diversity mindset, their goals that we try to meet on the number of women we bring, number of women from diversity community in. And that's something that even the founders, the founders pushed this. So this is essential. But my joke, which I gave to my boss the other day, was every time when you're in a meeting and you see only men around you, you should stop the meeting and say, 
at least one person, at least one woman needs to be here. Because if there's only men in that table, something's wrong. You're going to have one point of view. You're not getting a diverse point of view. You're not enriching the opinion there. You're not getting the, the other backgrounds. Ross, I think there are a couple of things. One is, jokes aside here, is one is for sure the company needs to put and not as a nice to have, not an uh-huh. ESG number so you can show the investors. Let's truly believe on it. I mean, truly believe. Look if there's a difference in salary in your company. Why don't you have at least 40% of your leadership or 30% of your leadership women? Which programs are you putting in place to bring these women on board? Maybe you're going to open roles that are only, you're going to only feel loud if women arrive. My position in Brazil, for example, was a position that the goal was to hire a woman as a CFO for Latin America. And so you need to challenge yourself to do this. But apart from this, you also need to, to set up an environment where, uh, where the women yeah, leadership yeah. can grow. Okay. So you have to have other women there, women not all of us, but some of us do have kids, do have small kids, and the weight of the, the I would say, the house chore, even though we are fighting hard, still fall mostly with the women. So what can the company do to make it this, for this woman to really give her best with the situation she's in? It's not one only one variable. And, and, and then you, you start from the school Kids should, even from kindergarten, you need to teach those kids that who are the scientists that are women and so on. I think, I mean, I can go over and over about this, but it needs to be a transformation that all of us as society will have to be involved. Even in that summary that you've given there, it's just clear that there are so many different things that need to be done, some of them on a societal level, but then there's a lot that companies can control. Uh, And I think if we can focus on those pieces that we can control, like each company, each team can do, can do a better job at that. I think it's it's great advice and certainly something that we can take on board as well as the, as well as the audience. And Ross, I want to tell you a quick story. So I wrote our article about this. I did like almost a hundred interviews to bring uh, to for a position of capital market in Brazil, which is very male oriented. Most investment bankers will probably apply for this position. Every time, every time, with no exception, I when I was interviewing, there was an entire article that I wrote this and even how they drink coffee, that how the women always put it away, the coffee, because you know, some of you make your own coffee. Women would always put away their own coffee. Some of the, the some of the men would leave the coffee on the table. But all of the interviews, which to me scared, was scary. All of them, the women would come in at some point and say, you know, I was looking at all the pre-requirements and prerequisites for this position. I really don't think I have it. At some point of the interview, they would say this. And all of them made a comment about, oh, you know, I never met anybody that went to MIT. Oh, I'm so I'm so happy I'm here. Or this is, this is so interesting. And every time in an interview, not all of them, but a good person of the men would em- tell me, Am I going to be reporting to you or should I report for the global CFO? Because it's a capital market position in the end of the day. So I thought it was very interesting. I wrote an article on this. And one of the decisions that some up now decided is when we're posting for a position, we even saying women, women who are reading this, if you don't check out the box, don't. that's okay. But please apply for the position. 
because women, they will look at it and they're like, if I'm not 100% and I do this to myself, I mean, I am the perfect example of this. Uh, every time and I will even describe anything I do, I, I always catch myself saying, yeah, I'm not sure if I know this. And in the end of the day, I probably do know more than most of the people that are there because it's finance that I'm talking about. Uh-huh. But it's uh, it's interesting. It's really interesting. That's fascinating. And it and it also just says that you, you need to be so thoughtful. Like one one needs to be so thoughtful about the type of language you use. You you touched on the environment beforehand, but the, it's not just about programs and about the statistics. It's, it goes down to the very culture of the company that you're in, the team that you're in, uh, and then also tr- almost trying to unravel some of the conditioning that happens in society, exactly. which is exceptionally deeply embedded. Yeah, deeply embedded. And for example, now for the finance team in Brazil, I think it's probably the only team in Latin America that's 50% women, 50% men. But I I know mm-hmm. it. I, of course, I'm trying to, to, to hire women, but it's just they felt more encouraged to apply for the position when they knew that they were the CFO in the role that was women, which is very mm. interesting. And, and that's yeah, it comes back to the importance of role models, which I think is a powerful and an appropriate message to, to finish our podcast interview on. So, Mariana, thank you so much for taking you, the time Ross. to join us on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you very much. One last thing. We want to learn from you our listeners, to learn how we can make the CFO playbook even better. Head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.